John 2, verse 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called to the bridegroom and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That is the word of the Lord. When I was a newer Christian, I read a series of letters by C.S. Lewis. These letters were written to someone who was also a new Christian. And at one place, in one of those letters, Lewis said this, It is, as you know, a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as they can. I remember reading that for the first time and being absolutely stunned. It's a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as they can. I wasn't expecting Lewis to say something like that. So intrigued as I was by his idea, I went to the Bible to explore more, and I realized that he was right. According to the Bible, God takes your joy very, very seriously. Joy is meant to be an essential, not an optional part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, you might be here today and identify as a Christian. There are others here today who do not identify as Christians. Maybe you're investigating or exploring the claims of the Christian faith. But wherever you are on that spiritual journey or that religious spectrum, one thing that we all share is this deep, fundamental desire to be happy, to experience lasting joy. And I don't just mean joy that comes to you as the result of pleasant circumstances, but a kind of deep soul joy that is with you regardless of your circumstances. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, once put it like this, everyone seeks happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, we're all working towards this same end. What Pascal is saying is that there's a common thread running through the tapestry of every person's life, and that thread is a deep desire to find lasting joy. But the question is, in a world like ours, filled with such disappointment and hurt and heartbreak, is lasting and real joy even possible? And that's why John chapter 2 is such good news for us. You know, this story is very well known. It's Jesus' first miracle. He turns water into wine at a wedding in Cana. <clears throat> but as we'll see in just a few moments, this story, as wonderful it is, is more than just a story. If you look with me down at verse 11 of our passage, let me read to you how the author John summarizes this whole story. He says in verse 11, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
Now that phrase, first of the signs, is very significant. It's kind of the key for understanding how important John chapter 2 is. That word signs tells us that this story is meant to be pointing to something bigger and beyond itself. You know, if you're traveling down the road and you see a sign, that sign is not your destination, but it's pointing you forward towards your destination. When you see a sign, you're meant to look at the sign to what it's pointing you towards. And John says this story is a sign pointing to something bigger and beyond itself. And more than that, it's the first of the signs. Now that's true chronologically. This is the first miracle in the ministry of Jesus. But more than that, that word first in the Greek language is arche. And arche is where we get our English word archetype. John is saying this story is the archetype sign. This is the pattern sign. If you want to know everything about what Jesus came to do and to teach, it's all prefigured here in these verses where Jesus goes to a wedding and turns water into wine. And so I want to look with you today at this story as a sign, a sign specifically of three things. First, this story is a sign of what you need. Second, it's a sign of who Jesus is. And then third, it's a sign of what Jesus came into the world to do. So a sign of what you need, who Jesus is, and what he came into the world to do. First, let's look at this story as a sign of what you need. Jesus and his disciples were invited to a wedding. His mom, uh, Jesus' mom Mary, was also there. So that suggests this was the wedding of a close family friend. And wedding celebrations in the first century were a really big deal. I mean, I know they're a big deal today. But back then, a wedding celebration would last for a whole week. The whole town would be invited, and it would be the highlight of life for the bride and groom. And so you can understand and imagine the anxiety in Mary's voice when she comes to Jesus in verse 3, and she says to them, she says to Jesus, they have no more wine. The wine ran out at the wedding. And that's actually the first way that this story is a sign that in your life, sooner or later, the wine runs out. Now, throughout the Bible, wine is a symbol of joy. Wine is for banquets and for parties and being together with the people that you love. It's a symbol of joy. Psalm 104 and verse 15 says that wine is a gift from God that gladdens human hearts. The rabbis used to have a saying that without wine, there is no joy. Of course, this is not wine to be drunk in excess, but this is wine as a symbol of joy, of celebration, of being together with those that you love. Wine is a symbol of joy. But here at this wedding, the wine has run out. Now, for the wine to run out at the wedding may not sound like a big deal to you or I, but that's because we don't fully appreciate the social expectations that would have gone into a first century wedding. It was actually, according to what we know historically, the responsibility of the groom to ensure that there would have been enough wine provided for the duration of this week-long wedding celebration. And for the wine to run out would have been a major social embarrassment for this young new couple. It would have exposed them to being the butts of jokes inside their community. It could have also opened them up to even financial implications from aggrieved members of the wedding party. It was really tough to run out of wine. It was really embarrassing and humiliating. Now we can ask the question, why did the wine run out in this story? 
And as far as I can tell, there are at least three options. One, maybe the groom planned poorly. Maybe he just didn't prioritize making enough preparation. Second, maybe he came from a poor family. So try as he might, his family just didn't have enough resources to provide enough wine. Or third, maybe the community threw him a curveball. Maybe more people showed up than RSVP'd. You know, they had some wedding crashers. So you see, why did the wine run out? Maybe it was his fault. Maybe it was somebody else's fault. Or maybe it was because of circumstances outside of his control. But whatever the reason, the result was the same. The wine ran out. And here's what's interesting. If you look down at verse 3, you see that the text simply says, when the wine ran out. It's almost as if the author expects the wine to run out, like it was going to happen no matter what. And that's because this story is a sign. It's a sign saying that in your life, sooner or later, the wine always runs out. Deep and lasting joy is hard to capture. You know, we have moments, don't we? We're pierced with joy. We're so happy we feel like our hearts could burst. Those moments are wonderful, but they fade. They evade us, and the joy runs out. And yet over and over, we say to ourselves, if I, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> if I can just get there, if I can just be with that person, if I can just get that opportunity, if I just had another chance, then I know that I would be happy. We say to ourselves, if I can just have one more shot, You know, many of you came to London. Some of you have just arrived in London because you think that in London, this is the place that you're going to find your wine. This is the place that you're going to find that joy that you've always been looking for, that thing that will finally make your heart happy. But you know what happens? Many of you did come to London or have just arrived, and you know what? You got the job. You'll get the good opportunities. You'll meet the right people. You'll get that person. And you know what? the wine will still run out. That deep peace that you're seeking in those things, it'll evade you. Years ago, my brother and I were trekking in the Himalaya mountains. And if you've ever been hiking in really big mountains, maybe you experienced what we experienced during that trip, which is the illusion of the false summit. I remember one particular morning, we got up real early and we were going out to hike and we had to cross the peak. This was sort of the hardest part of our trek. And that morning, as we were looking to where we were going, constantly what happened is we saw ahead what we thought was the peak of the mountain. And we said, if we can just get there, then it's going to get better after that. So we'd get to where we were looking, and we realized that's a false summit. It's not actually the top. And so we'd go a little farther and say, oh, there it is. And we'd get to that spot. And again, false summit. So that finally, by the time we got to the top of the mountain, we were so over the whole thing, we just wanted to get down. But what happened? We constantly were saying to ourselves, if we can just go a little farther, get a little higher, then things will get easier, then things will get better. And it was a false summit. And friends, life is filled with false summits. The things we set our hearts on and say, if we can just get there, then we'll be okay. But it's a false summit and the wine always runs out. Maybe the wine has run out in your life because of poor choices that you've made. Maybe the wine has run out because of the actions of other people. Maybe things just haven't worked out. It's nobody's fault. It's just how things turned out to be. But the truth for all of us is sooner or later, 
the wine will run out. Even in the best of circumstances, in the most fulfilling parts of our lives, sooner or later we realize that the people we were after, the opportunities we crave, the, the goals that we had, they can't bring us that lasting joy that we seek. And that's not because those things were bad. It's because we were looking to them to give us something they were never meant to give us in the first place. That's the first sign of this passage. We need a joy that doesn't run out. We need a joy that lasts despite the circumstances that we might go through in our life. Now, here's the thing. Most religions and worldviews will tell you that that's true. You need a joy. You need a peace. You need a hope that will sustain you no matter what. But most religions and worldviews come to you with a set of to-dos. If you want to find that joy, if you want to know that peace, if you want to have that hope, here are all the things that you have to go and do in order to have them. But Christianity is different. Christianity doesn't come to us and say, here's all the things that you must do. But actually, first and primarily, Christianity says, here's what God has done to bring that joy to you. One author writing about John chapter 2 says this, in our lives, the wine always gives out. That's a fact. But to be a Christian is to have the deep privilege of living in contact with the winery. And that's the second sign of this passage. If the first sign is what we need, a joy that never runs out, the second sign of this passage is who Jesus is. He is the bringer of joy. Jesus is the joy bringer. Now back to our story. We don't know exactly why in verse three, Mary felt it necessary to tell Jesus that the wine had run out. Probably at this point in her life, she had realized whenever you have a problem, the best thing that you can tell, do is tell Jesus about it. So she comes to Jesus and says, verse three, they have no more wine. And then Jesus responds kind cryptically in verse four, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we'll come back to verse 4 in just a few minutes, but for now, notice Jesus must have said that with a wink in his eye. Because then in verse 5, Mary says to the servants who were there kind of making sure the wedding was happening, she says to them, do whatever he tells you. Now, in verse 6, we see that there were six very large stone water pots. These would have been kind of gigantic pots, and they would have been used for ceremonial washing. And Jesus says, fill those pots to the brim. So they do so. And then Jesus says, now take some of that water and bring it to the master of the banquet. So they do, and the master of the banquet tastes some of the water that has now been turned into wine. And in verse 10, he calls the groom aside. Now the groom must be thinking, oh my, I'm about to get publicly scolded because he knows the wine's running out, this is a problem. And he thinks he's about to be shamed in front of the whole community. But in verse 10, the master of the banquet says, actually, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. I would have loved to see the groom's face that day. And that's the miracle. That's the story. The wine was running out. The wedding was heading for total embarrassment and disaster. But Jesus, quite privately, not public, not to expose the groom's fault, turns water into wine and saves him, saves the couple, and saves the wedding from disaster. Now that's the miracle. And here's what's so interesting to me. Throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he's gonna do some pretty extraordinary miracles. He's gonna turn 
he's going to help people who are deaf begin to hear. He's going to raise people from the dead. He's going to feed the hungry. He's going to walk on water. Jesus is going to do amazing things in his life and in his ministry. So why is it that John says the archetype sign, the, the pattern sign, the sign that makes sense of everything else is this one. When Jesus, in a very private way, saves a couple from humiliation and embarrassment as he saves their wedding. Why is this the archetype sign? Well, I think that question leads us to the key of understanding not just this passage, but actually part of the heart of the Christian message. Earlier in the sermon, I alluded to the fact that when I was a newer Christian, one of the things that I most appreciated about Christianity was its emphasis on joy. There are places in the Bible that say things like, rejoice in the Lord always. You know, that's a command. Rejoice, be happy, be joyful in God. There are other passages like Psalm 16 that says, in God's presence there are fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so you can see in the Bible and in Christian teaching, joy is a big deal. But on the other hand, there are in the Bible passages that talk about suffering how sometimes even God will send or allow suffering to come into a person's life. There are passages in the Bible that talk about obeying God or obeying Jesus, and it doesn't feel often like joy. Sometimes it can feel like dying. And so as you begin to see, what I wrestled with for much of my Christian life is this tension, on one hand, a emphasis on joy, but on another hand, this emphasis on suffering and hardship and how sometimes obedience to God can feel like death and so difficult and hard. And so the question is, how do we reconcile that tension? What is Christianity really about? Is Christianity about joy? Or is Christianity, as some people sometimes think, actually a killjoy, limiting your joy and limiting your freedom? And I think to resolve that tension, John 2 is the key. Because if this story is the first sign of Jesus, if this is the archetype, if this is the pattern, then what that means is all the suffering, all the hard obedience, all the seasons of sorrow, all those things are not ends in themselves, but they're means to an end. And the end that God is working towards, the end that God has in mind is what's prefigured here in this story. The purpose of all the obedience the purpose of all the suffering, the point of all the sorrow is driving towards and culminating in this joyful kingdom that God is establishing. It's no surprise that the Bible ends with a marriage feast. Revelation chapter 19, the end, the future to which we're all trending is this great marriage feast that God throws for his people. There's a place in the book of Isaiah, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, that says this, looking forward, Isaiah was down the corridor of time, and he says on that day, that final day when God sets up his kingdom, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meat and the finest of wine, and on that day he will destroy the gloom that hangs over all people, and he will swallow up death forever. That's what's coming. That's what Jesus intends for you this great marriage feast, this joyful celebration in which all that is wrong is made right. And joy is the final word where everything sad has come untrue. 
So as we take all that together, we begin to see that there is a resolution to this tension. The resolution is simply this. Yes, sometimes following God is hard. Yes, this world is filled with heartbreak and suffering. But none of those things are the ends that God intends ultimately. All those things are means to ends. And the end that God intends for you, the end that God intends for me, is festival joy. Writing about this reality, C.S. Lewis, who I alluded to earlier, writes about John chapter 2. And he says this of our great story today. He says, this miracle proclaims that the God of all wine is present. The vine is one of the blessings that has been sent by God. And if the thing happened, then we know that what has come into nature is no anti-natural spirit. No God who loves tragedy and tears and fasting for their own sake, but the God of Israel, who has through all these centuries given us wine to gladden the heart of man. Let me read one part of that again. If this miracle happened, then we know that what has come into our world is no God who loves tragedy and tears and fasting for their own sake. He may allow them for a time. He may use them for his purpose. But the end to which all of this is pointing is festival joy. That's true because this is the archetype sign. This is the pattern sign. And so all the suffering, all the sorrow, all the hard obedience has ultimately as its goal the joy of God's kingdom. So you put points one and two together and where does that leave us so far? What do you need? Joy that never runs out. Who is Jesus? He's the bringer of this deep lasting joy who works in and through even the hardest of circumstances to produce this joy within us. But the question now finally is to ask, well, how would Jesus do it? How would Jesus bring this joy into your life and into our world? And the answer to that question is in verse four. I said we'd come back to this verse. It's such an important verse, not only in John 2, but in the whole gospel. Mary has said to Jesus again, they have no more wine, but look at verse four. Jesus responds, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, before you think Jesus to be terribly disrespectful to his mom, please know that that word woman, it's courteous, even if it's a bit distant. It's kind of like saying ma'am or madam. And then Jesus says, why are you telling me my hour has not yet come? Now that word hour is the key to unlocking the mystery of this story. Because that word hour, whenever it appears in the Gospel of John, is always referring to the hour of Jesus's death on the cross when he would die for his people as a sacrifice. But that actually makes the story a little bit more puzzling, doesn't it? Mary says, they have no more wine. And Jesus says, why are you telling me? It's not my problem. It's not my time to die yet. What's going on? Why is Jesus referring to his hour? Well, probably Jesus is doing something that you've likely done if you yourself have ever attended a wedding. Have you ever been to a wedding and during that wedding found yourself thinking, maybe daydreaming about your own wedding? Maybe thinking about a wedding that you hope to have in the future, or maybe even reflecting on a wedding that you once had in your past. And so you're at someone else's wedding, but you're thinking about your own. And that's what's happening here in verse four. Jesus is at somebody else's wedding, but his mind is thinking about his own wedding. 
In chapter 3 of John's Gospel, Jesus himself will be called a groom. Jesus is the great groom of the church, the great groom of our souls. And on this day when Mary comes to Jesus and says they have no more wine, Jesus' mind begins to think about what he's going to have to do to provide the wine for his wedding feast, for his wedding ceremony. But Jesus knows that to provide the ultimate wine, the ultimate joy, the ultimate peace, the ultimate hope for God's people, for the church, for you and I, that provision is going to cost him everything. It's going to cost him the sacrifice of his own life. It's going to lead him to his hour, his dying on the cross. And that's why when Christians celebrate the Lord's Supper, you know, when we eat the bread and we take the cup, we're remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. Think about it. On that night, as Jesus gave the supper to his disciples, he takes a cup of wine in his hand and he says, this cup, is the new covenant shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sin. This wine symbolizes a new way of relating to God. You see, the old covenant was about if you keep the rules, if you do all the right things, then you can have the blessing, then you'll have joy, then you'll know peace. But what's the new covenant? Because Jesus obeyed God perfectly. Because Jesus kept the law 100%. Because Jesus fulfilled all the obligations that you couldn't. Now, if you look to him, if you trust in him, if you rest in him, you are covered and clothed in the perfection of Jesus. You get the blessing, you get the joy, you get the peace because of his sacrifice for you. That's the new covenant. And so Jesus, as he's there on that wedding day, his mind has gone forward and he realizes the only way that my people are going to know the joy and the peace and the hope that they so desperately crave is through my death on their behalf. And that's where Jesus' mind has gone. He is the bringer of joy, but the way he would bring joy into this world, the way he would bring joy into your life is through the sacrifice of himself, doing for you what you can never do for yourself, dying in your place and giving you his perfection, his righteousness. Now, by way of conclusion, that's the story, but by way of conclusion, let me offer three points of application, three ways of applying this great story to your life today. First, know that if this story is true, if Jesus really is the bringer of joy, if he came to give his life a sacrifice so that you could be brought into God's family, first, you need to know that means the best is yet to come. In the story, the best wine was saved till the end. And if you're a Christian here today, then your future tells you that always the best is yet to be. And what we're meant to do as Christians is judge our present in light of the promises of our future. We're to allow the promises of God's kingdom, the promises of God's future to shape and even to reshape the way we understand what's happening in the world today. Even our joys and our struggles, our hopes and our fears are all to be interpreted by the coming kingdom of God. Everything that we enjoy and even all the hardship, all of that somehow finds new meaning as we look at God's kingdom and allow the promises of the future to shape our present. 
give you an example. Earlier I mentioned that my brother and I had went trekking in the Himalayas. I have to say, I don't actually like hiking that much. I don't enjoy camping. But the few times that I've done it, the only reason that it's tolerable to me is because I know that it's not permanent. Because I know that eventually it will end and home is coming. A better future awaits me. I'll be back in my bed. My coffee maker will be there. Everything sad will come untrue. What Jesus is telling us here, what the whole Bible points towards, is the fact that the best is yet to be. And so we allow those future promises to shape our present, not by putting our heads in the sand and having an escapist mentality, but by being people of deep hope, no matter what we face, because the best is yet to be. The second point of application, the verdict is in and you are accepted. The verdict is in and you're accepted. You know, we spend so much of our energy in our life trying to prove ourselves. But this passage is a reminder that if you're a Christian, when you stand before the master of the universe, you're accepted. Isn't it amazing how in our story in John 2, the groom who failed spectacularly is called in front of the master of the banquet. And he was probably expecting to be publicly shamed. Hey man, you dropped the ball. You didn't plan well. Your wine ran out. He was going to be humiliated. But instead, as he stands before the master of the banquet, he gets the credit for what Jesus has done. And when you stand before the master of the universe, if you're in Christ, if you trust in him, if you know him as the bringer of joy, when you stand before the master of the universe, you get the credit for what Jesus has done. And third point of application, you are loved. You are loved. Marie Lagrange used to say that there's nothing that fills a person with joy like knowing that they're loved. And the death of Jesus for you, the fact that he went to his hour, shows you how infinitely loved you are, that you are both seen to the bottom, known fully, and yet loved to the sky. Hebrews chapter 12 says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And you are that joy. Jesus, as he died for you and in your place, did so joyfully because he was giving himself up as a sacrifice to bring you into his family. You were the joy that Jesus had on his heart as he went to the cross to die in your place. And so now we come to a time of response. And as we do so, I ask you, do you know Jesus as the bringer of joy? Now's the time to respond and to Look to your own heart as to what it means that if you're in Jesus, the best is yet to come. The verdict is in, you're accepted, and you are loved infinitely. Let's pray as we now come to this time of response. Our God, thank you for John chapter 2, this amazing story. But thank you that it's more than a story, it's a sign. And so help us today to experience Jesus as our bringer of joy. Help us to experience him as the one who gave his life and sacrifice for us. And may we come to him with surrender. May we come to his altar, giving ourselves over to him with absolute surrender, knowing that there's nothing better than being in your love. There's nothing better than being in your presence. So meet us now, we pray. Help us to encounter you powerfully and personally. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.